All right. It's good to see you here this morning. I've already been on the tobacco trail and run a half marathon. And uh, it's funny, in the first service, people laughed at that as well. And I can't understand why that would cause any, any laughter. This guy came in early to the 9 o'clock service, and he said, uh, yeah, I've already been over to the trail and, and run a race. And, and, and I'm looking at him going, man, that's awesome. And he's going, no, no, I didn't run. He said, I just, I just went and watched. He said, I'm... I'm, I'm exhausted. That's probably closer to what, uh, to what I might be. So anybody do that, though, this morning? Maybe somebody did. Yeah. Hey, how'd you do? You finished, right? Hey, I mean, just finishing would be great for me, right? That's awesome. Good. And you got to church as well. That's awesome. That's great. Anybody else? All right, nobody else. The rest of us, the rest of us are just, uh... hey, there's Matt Rice coming in the back door. Maybe Matt did it. Did you just get back from the tobacco trail running the race? No, you didn't. All right. All right. I'm going to do that some year. Maybe. All right. Well, thanks for being here uh, today. And uh, we, uh, I, I want you to know I, I count it as a privilege to have you here each week. Uh, I, I think it's very easy for pastors especially to get to the point where you just expect people to show up, Right? And um, certainly it is our, our, uh, our privilege and our responsibility as followers of Jesus to, to show up and be part of a fellowship, to be part of. But I want you to know that I, I recognize there are a lot of places you could go this morning. There's a lot of nice warm beds you could stay in this morning. And, uh, and yet you're here, and, and I'm thankful for that. Well, we have been uh, over the last uh, several weeks, we've been in our uh, series, uh, Irresistible Influence, and what it looks like for us to be a church of irresistible influence. And there have been a number of questions that have been asked, and each week before I dive into the Word, I've just uh, taken a moment to answer a few of those questions, and I want to do that uh, uh, this morning as well. I had somebody ask this question this morning, is it really a but-God moment when a small group of men work really hard to see this land deal happen? It really is a but-God moment. If it wasn't a but-God moment and all it took was a few really uh, savvy business guys to put this deal together, trust me, I'd go put together another deal for me, all right? If that's all it took to get two and a half or three million dollars, how many of you'd work to put together a deal of your own? I mean, we do that, right? I appreciate the question, but I'm telling you, God has shown up so many times, that just, just rest assured, this is one of those moments where God just has shown up and God is paving the way for this project to move forward. In fact, pray uh, tomorrow afternoon the Wake County Commissioners meet to approve the sale of a piece of land on White Oak Church Road for an elementary school. We really, really want that to happen, really badly. And um, from what we understand, they're favorable to it and it looks like that's going to go through. But pray tomorrow for the Wake County Commissioners. That's another piece to this puzzle. If they get that uh, piece of land and they build that elementary school, uh, it will make uh, the water and sewer process for us much, much easier. And uh, so just pray if you think about it. I think that meeting starts at 2 o'clock uh, Monday afternoon. I uh, just pray that those uh, commissioners, we, we, we know they spend money, right? So we're just asking them to spend a little bit on, Wake, on uh, White Oak Church uh, Road, and that would uh, that'd be a good thing for us. A second question, is there a kitchen in phase one? Obviously came from a Baptist, right? who said, I want to know, can we eat in this building? I, I, I get where you're coming from. I've been there, right? And there's not a kitchen per se. We, we say, I think the technical terms are, it's more of a warming kitchen. 
Uh, we're not going to have a full commercial kitchen in phase one. Uh, I'd love to have a full commercial kitchen where you can fry stuff. Because anything, even vegetables are good probably if you get enough breading on them and you fry them, right? We're not going to have that type of kitchen in phase one. It'll be more of a warming type kitchen uh, so we can uh, do catering things and other things in our, in our cafe uh, area. Uh, third question was, are we building a community center like a YMCA? No, we're not. And here's why you can easily get confused. The, the YMCA, I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you show up at their building, they don't just let you in, right? You've got to have this little card that says you paid initiation fee and you pay a monthly fee to be part of that. You go in there, you have weight machines, you have uh, swimming pools and those kind of things. Uh, not in that kind of a sense. We want our building to be a blessing to the community and there's a lot of aspects of our facility that are going to be a blessing to our community, but not a, uh, a YMCA-type uh, atmosphere uh, at all. Number four, any safety concerns about playground and a pond off the tobacco trail? Yes, yes. There's a lot of concerns. In a world where we live in, where people come onto your property and they fall and they sue you, right? We fully expect that... Um, uh, that there'll be times when uh, we have some liability there. That's why we've had a liability policy since the first uh, service that we had at Northwest, and I fully assume that in the future uh, that policy will be used. Hopefully not because of our negligence. We certainly will uh, we'll do everything we can to have those uh, things be safe, but that, uh, that, that there certainly are safety concerns. Question number five was, is our Northwest family really capable of raising $3.9 million dollars? I believe that we are. Will we do that? I, I don't know. Uh, I know it's going to take uh, all of us uh, participating, and it's going to take all of us being uh, generous. We're going to talk about that this morning. You know, sometimes we have this idea that God's poor. I think it's sad that we've bought into that idea when God owns everything. Everything that, that we have, everything that we possess you may be really proud of what you've done, what you think you've earned, but let me remind you that none of it belongs to you. It is all God's. It is all God's. He's entrusted it to us. One pastor said it this way one time, it isn't that God uh, has, doesn't have the money, he just has to get you to get it out of your pocket, right? I even this morning told Diana, you know, those confessionals you have with your spouse where you just really feel like you can be honest, and I told her, I just... I'm just really anxious, and I don't want to be, and I know it's not God's will for me to be anxious, but I don't know what's going to happen next week. We've never, we've never done this. We've set out some lofty goals, and people seem excited, but I'm excited about a lot of things that I'm not going to give money to, right? So I know how that, how that goes, but I believe that it is fully possible for us to raise a large sum of money for the cause of the gospel here in Northwest Cary. I fully believe that. And I believe that God's going to do what he's going to do if we're, if we're uh, generous and we're obedient. And uh, some of us are going to do more than others because God's entrusted more to our care. And if God's entrusted it to your care, uh, you better be generous. You better be generous. God doesn't give us more in order that we might amuse ourselves. He gives us more in order that we might bless others. And oh, if I could learn that personally and grasp a hold of that, and rip it to the ground, and make that part of my DNA. And I desire the same thing for you. Somebody also asked, what if I pledge and move out of the area? <laughs> um, if you pledge and move out of the area, pay your pledge. I mean, that's what you ought to do. Just <clears throat> Now, I told this person, you know, if you pledge and you move out of the area, and God puts you in another church that 
needs uh, some of the resources he's entrusted to you more than we do, then give them those funds. We live that way as a church. We want to live with open hands. And, and we've, we've done that since day one, and, and we're going to continue to do that. And so if you make a pledge and God moves you out of the area and some other church that you go to needs those funds more than we do, then you should uh, give it to them. If they don't, then uh, maybe God wants you to continue to pay off that pledge. I do know this, that if you pledge something and you can't do it, uh, you move out of the area, God's going to bring along somebody to take care of your pledge. I firmly believe that. I believe our church is marked by uh, generosity. I had a, a man come up to me just this morning who I didn't even know. And um, he said with tears in his eyes, thank you for helping me. And I said, how, how did we help you? And he told me a story. And then I remembered that one of our staff had told me that we had helped him. Uh, a man in our community that had some very serious eye issues, did not have any insurance, did not have any money, did not know where to go to for help. And so somebody that knows Northwest, who, by the way, is not an attender at Northwest, but said, I think they help people, uh, steered him to us, and uh, we helped him. And his eyesight is better. And he said in his broken English this morning, as tears flowed down his face, I didn't think anybody cared. And I assured him, there are people right here that care. Uh, we not only care, as we talked about several weeks ago, we not only care about people right here in the household of faith, we care about people in this community. And we're demonstrating that on a weekly basis, and it's because of the generosity uh, of God's people. So, so thanks for that. Well, somebody else asked me, what's the process next week? Like, what are we going to do? Well, when you come in uh, next week, uh, you got, in fact, you got another pledge card this morning, just so you can be familiar with that. I'm really asking you this week to really pray. Make your kids part of this process, by the way. We're going to do that with our kids uh, this week. Make your kids part of the process and uh, come prepared to turn in your pledge card. Don't turn it into the towers uh, in the back. There'll be a time toward the end of our service when we're going to do that uh, together. And uh, we really want 100% participation. You may not be able to do as much as somebody else, and that's okay. God knows what he's entrusted into your care and what you're capable of doing with what he's blessed you with and, and with how he continues to bless you. Uh, but we don't need necessarily equal gifts. We need equal sacrifice. And uh, I trust you'll come uh, prepared to participate uh, next week. Well, some people are board game fanatics, aren't they? Some people love board games. I mean, there's a guy that's in our church who's looking right at me this morning. And if you give this guy some cards and a dice or any kind of a board, he will, if there is no game, he will make up a game. He will play the game. He loves board games. Uh, me, not so much. Um, I get very frustrated very quickly. Uh, I cheat sometimes. I, I just fully admit that. I have cheated at Uno. I've cheated. I've dropped cards under the table. Just, hey, confession, they say, is good for the soul. And those that laugh the loudest also cheat. Just want to, okay, there we go, just so you're honest, all right? One game that I do like is Monopoly. I read this this week. When Charles B. Darrow proposed a new board game called Monopoly to Parker Brothers in 1934, the all-knowing executives rejected it due to 52 design errors, they said. But Darrow, who was a true believer in his game, started printing and selling it himself. And obviously, the rest is history, right? There aren't uh, too many Christmases that go by when under somebody's Christmas tree there isn't a Monopoly game. There's even electronic versions of Monopoly now. 
Pastor John Ortberg writes of growing up with a grandmother who was a ruthless competitor at Monopoly. That would be me as well. Uh, I enjoyed, as my kids were little, beating them, bankrupting them. I loved that. Uh, Especially my boys, bankrupting them and having them grovel to me to buy their property for pennies on the dollar. Some of you, it's very interesting. You're looking at each other right now. You have done the same thing with your kids. We are a sick group of people. Pastor John Ortberg said that his grandmother did that. She was ruthless. She played against her grandchildren, and he said she won almost every time. It's okay for a dad, a grandma. Don't do that if you're a grandma. It's not good. Your kids will need counseling someday, and it's expensive. He goes on to say, one day I managed to win. And as most kids will do, he made the most of his rare victory. He raked all the play money, the tokens, and the markers towards him, and he gloated arrogantly in his triumph. The grandmother smiled, and she said, Just remember, John, it all goes back in the box. All the money, all the hotels, all the motels, the game tokens, at the end of the game, it all goes back in the box. I thought about this week. The game of Monopoly and how that's so true. And the reality of Monopoly is also the reality of life itself, is it not? Everything God gives us to manage for him while we're here on this planet, everything that we have, ultimately, what happens to it? It all goes back in the box. You know that there are 2,350 references in Scripture to money and possessions, In fact, uh, 15% of everything that Jesus said that we have recorded in the New Testament is about money and possessions. One Bible scholar said this. He said that Jesus spent more time talking about money and possessions than he did heaven and hell combined. Now you ask yourself the question, why would Jesus take so much time Why would he spend so many words, so much effort, so much energy to talk about money and possessions? And I submit to you this morning that I think that the reason is because there is a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we handle our money and our possessions. I have, uh, over the years, uh, heard the story of uh, one of our couples uh, here at Northwest and about their struggle early on in their marriage, in their family, and in their business, about having the proper perspective on money and possessions. And I want you to uh, listen to their story right now. I'm Joel Tillerson, and I am a local boy from Apex, North Carolina. I'm from right around here. Me and Shelly have been married now for almost 25 years, and that's the same uh, length of time that I've had this green printed company. It's, since 1986, uh, we have been printing t-shirts. Early in my uh, years of screen printing, I had a business partner, and um, me and him started this. Uh, you know, I was in college, and uh, it just wasn't working out for me. I did a co-op at General Electric. I could just tell that corporate life wasn't going to be for me. So we started this business, and um, I did that for years and years and years. And during that time is when I met my wife, Shelly. 
as my business was growing, we were giving regularly to the church. Every paycheck, I would take the first part of that check and I would, and I would give it uh, faithfully. But um, it's funny how you can rationalize things in your life because at the same time, uh, there were some ethical issues in my business and the biggest one would be tax evasion. Back then, people would pay in cash all the time. They'd come in and order, you know, pick up the thing and they'd pay in cash. I felt this conviction, this deep conviction in, in me that what I was doing wasn't right. So I uh, approached my business partner. Uh, I got up the courage to approach him. I made my argument to him while I was convicted. And I went home that night and I, um, I just remember sitting down at a table and I said, I, I wonder if there's really anything in the Bible about paying taxes anyway. I literally took the Bible and I just opened it up. And as I opened it up, the first three words that I read were the subtitle on the top of the page here, which said, Obey the Government. And then my eyes quickly glanced down and I went right down and the next four words I read were, Pay your taxes too. We were struggling really bad at that time. We had two young kids. Uh, one years old and just a few months old and we were barely getting by and um, I like to tell people sometimes it's kind of like we were at the door like the Israelites when they came out of Egypt and they got to the door of the promised land and they were fixing to cross in. I feel like God had us right there and all we needed to do was just come up with the faith to to cross over but I chickened out and I couldn't do it and I went into work the next week on Monday morning, a customer came in and paid cash. And I took the money and I put it in my pocket and I didn't do any, I didn't say anything about what I just read. We signed up for a course called Experiencing God. And um, through that course, I really began to grow. We both began to grow. And for me, what it was for me is I, I started to learn and be really convicted that it wasn't what I believed that mattered so much, it was what I did with what I believed. And it got to the point where I began, my, my burden was so heavy, the way that I was conducting business um, in ways that weren't honoring to God, that it was so heavy on me that a time finally came in my life where I realized I had to do something, that I could no longer do things the way I was doing. It's kind of like he had brought us back to the door of the promised land again. And we had done our lap and we're right there again, standing at the door. And um, it's kind of like in Hebrews, it talks about the cloud of witnesses. And it's almost like I could feel them um, cheering me on, like, like, go for it this time, go for it this time. I corrected every single integrity issue I could think of in the, in the business. And it's funny how God works because the next month may have been the slowest month I've ever had. There's no work, there's nothing coming in. And the two or three orders that did come in, every single one of them paid in cash, every one. So this time, this is, wasn't about me anymore. If the money went straight in the bank, it was about August the 15th of that year, about a month later, and just things just started happening. And I can't really explain why or what it was other than, well, I knew what it was. I knew it was God. And um, from August the 15th of that year till we finished the year, our business had profited seven times as much as it had in the first seven and a half months. I did the calculations on that, and that was a growth rate of 1,400%. We're probably 
15 years in since that decision. We've had problems, we've had um, issues, but financially, we've always been taken care of. As hard as it was, I think it's grown our faith more that we know God is real. Um, when He's calling you to do something, whatever that, whatever that is, whatever that looks like to you in your life, um, just do it. I love that story. Um, I've gotten to have over the years a little more commentary uh, to it. And I love to see how God has uh, blessed obedience. It's amazing what happens, isn't it, when we uh, come into a proper perspective of who we are in Christ and our money and possessions. And I believe that's why Jesus talked about it so much because he understood, he created us, he understands that there's that fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we handle money and possessions. The leading religionists of uh, Jesus' day were preoccupied with stuff because they had an incorrect view of righteousness. It was, an in, it was inevitable that they would also have an incorrect view of material things. And so if you have your Bible, turn real quickly with me to Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus is going to share with these people his view, his perspective, his kingdom view of stuff. Verse 19 of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching this uh, great sermon on the mount. And he writes in verse 19, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now Jesus is not condemning all wealth. In fact, the Bible encourages us to be wise managers and to take care of the needs of our families. One of the things that I had thought about doing with you today is, is kind of talking a little more in depth about um, the parable of the talents how God entrusts things to us and he, and he expects us to take those things and, and to use them for his glory. God's not against have us having possessions. He blesses us with things. What Jesus is prohibiting here is the selfish accumulation of possessions. Literally what he's saying is don't stack up stuff for yourselves. Don't be a hoarder and be featured on TLC. Right? You ever watch that? Don't be one of those. What a problem, in fact, he writes. Your, your garments could be eaten by moths. Your grain could be eaten by rats. And your gold can be stolen by thieves. How much worse does it get than that? The point is that if you hoard it, you're going to lose it. I've come to understand this, and I think many of us have over the last uh, five years, that there really is no place of security in this life when it comes to money and possessions. People all over our area, all over this country, all over this earth have lost a lot of wealth. There is no bank. There is no broker. There is nothing, no place where your stuff is safe in this life. And even if you were to be able to keep it until you died, when you die, you're going to leave it all behind. Because after all, it all goes back in the box. In fact, Job had a proper perspective and. In the first chapter of Job, verse 21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. That's how we're all going to leave. Verse 20, Jesus says, But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. There are millions of people who are poor in this life that will be wealthy someday in eternity. 
And you understand, I think I heard just yesterday that there are 130,000 people in America that have assets greater than $25 million. Do you know how many of them one day will ultimately be poor in eternity? Because they have stored up for themselves treasures on this earth. We're making those choices right now. The solution to having a problem of loving our stuff is to have the attitude that Jesus challenges these people and us to have in verse 20. We're not called to relinquish all of our things, but to use them in a way that honors the owner, and that is God. We should use them for the well-being of our family and for the well-being of other people and certainly for the propagation of the gospel. Over the past several years, it's become a popular topic among the world's wealthiest people to talk about the, ha- the plans that they have for their wealth once they leave the earth. In fact, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have, have put a lot of energy behind this cause, behind this effort. They are challenging the world's wealthiest people to give away at least half of their wealth during their lifetime or at their death. It's a great idea. However, if you have $56 billion and you give away half of it, I would submit to you that you could still be classified as a hoarder and you could die a very, very poor man eternally, potentially. See, here's the problem. In his recent book, Gospel Patrons, that I read this week, and by the way, some of you businessmen would do well to read this book. It's only about 175 pages. It's one of those little books. You can read it in a couple of hours. It will really give you a great perspective. He wrote this, The Titans of Philanthropy will be only remembered for giving to good causes. Gospel patrons, on the other hand, will be remembered for giving to eternal ones. Verse 21, Jesus said, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, Scripture uses the the word heart to refer to the whole inner man, the wellspring of all that we do, which is why it's so important for our hearts to be properly aligned. If our hearts are are out of sync, if our hearts are in the wrong place, we're going to end up in the wrong place. That means that this means that Jesus is telling us that where our treasure is, that's where our total being is going to be. He's saying that the location of our treasure is where our heart already is. Where you build your treasure is where your heart will be. That's where your love is, and that's where your mind is focused. If the pursuit of material things, of material wealth, if that occupies you, if that's what drives you, if that's what's at the very center of your life, then I submit to you this morning that that is where your heart is. You can be here this morning, you can say you love Jesus, but if those things are at the center of your life, I didn't say it, Jesus said it, that's where your heart is and everything else becomes peripheral because your life is built on your treasure. And so if material things are what matter to you, then your life will be built around those things and you'll measure everything in light of how it will will affect that ultimate goal of you pursuing your own wealth and your own fascination with stuff. John Calvin said it this way, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has truly lost his authority. And so it would stand to reason that if that's true, and obviously Jesus said it, we believe that it is true, And if we're going to live generous lives, which so many of us say we want to live, then we must have a proper perspective on our money and on our stuff. 
We need to understand how to live generous lives, not as, not as hoarders, not as people who are, who are simply taking all we can for ourselves and for our little circle, but we need to learn how to live as givers, as, as good managers, as stewards of what God has given to us and entrusted into our care to be used for his glory. Now, some of you grew up in churches, maybe environments where you were taught that what's really biblical and right and what the Lord loves is he loves for you to give 10% of your income to ministry. A very interesting concept, however. I find it interesting, those pastors that teach that religiously, that they really don't teach all of the Jewish law. And I really think that they ought to. And if you've bought into the whole idea of tithing and you think that that's what's biblical and what's right and you know, you kind of sometimes get into the idea of, okay, is that off net or off gross? You know, what am I supposed to do there? If you bought into that idea, I want to remind you this morning not to, to get real in-depth about the process, but here's what giving under the law looked like. There was the Lord's tithe. That was 10%. That was mandatory. If you didn't pay it, according to Malachi 3.8, you were robbing God. There was the festival tithe. That was another 10%. We have how much now? 20%. Then there was the poor tithe that was 10% that you would give every three years. So that was about three and a third percent. And then there were various other offerings that the children of Israel told. They were to be generous. There was the year of Jubilee. Bible scholars estimate that really, under the law, the tithe was really closer to about 25% of one's income. So if you really want to buy into the law and you really want to live your life that way, then don't live it at 10. Go the full Monty, right? Get the big idea. It's about 25%. Here's what we teach at Northwest. We don't teach tithing at Northwest. We teach what I refer to as grace giving. And that is we give in response to what's been given to us. It's not about the law. We're under grace. If you didn't learn anything else when we studied the book of Galatians, you ought to be thankful that you're no longer under law, but we are under grace. And the question to ask ourselves that I've asked myself many times is, if under law they were required to give that much, how much more would a person give who has experienced grace? And so we say it's not about percentages, it's about relationship. It's interesting if you have your Bible flipped to the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 8. Paul gives instruction here to the church at Corinth about the collection for the brothers and sisters who were in Jerusalem. And this particular passage also provides the most concise model for, I believe, grace giving in the New Testament. Paul is challenging the Corinthian believers to be involved in this gift to the church at Jerusalem. These are poor people. Evidently, they have a need. And according to chapter 9 and verse 5, the Corinthians had said, we will participate, we will give to this, but they hadn't delivered on the gift. And so Paul is using the example of these people from Macedonia as an example of how we are to live generous lives. Macedonia, some of you may know from your Bible study, was the northern Roman province of Greece. Paul is referencing then here in this text the churches that are at Philippi and Thessaloniki and Berea. This was an impoverished province. They had been ravaged by many years of war. Many of them, scholars speculate, had lost their jobs because of their commitment to Jesus. They had been excluded from the trade guilds because they refused to have anything to do with idolatry. And as a result, these people were extremely poor. They were literally poverty-stricken. 
Today we think we're poor if we can't go out to eat more than a couple times a week. Or if we can't buy a new car or go on some luxurious vacation that we see advertised on TV. That is not historically the definition of poverty. You understand that, right? These people were really poor. In fact, if you were to look at some of the description of these people in uh, the Greek language, you would understand that literally those Greek words mean that they were literally at the bottom of the barrel. They were the poorest of the poor. About a year ago when I was in Kenya, I preached on this particular topic to our Kenyan friends out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, wanting them to understand that while they are poor, they are not the poorest of the poor. There are other poor people on this planet, and we have a responsibility to be generous. Principles of grace giving, I believe, are clearly defined by the Macedonians. These people got it. I'm going to give you just several, and I'm going to give them to you pretty rapid fire. So if you've got a pen and a piece of paper, I'll write these things down because I think they'll be helpful to you. Here's some of the principles that I think guided the giving of the Macedonians. Number one, they were motivated by experiencing God's grace. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. They, they were recipients of God's grace. They knew how much they had been given because of the grace of God. And is that not so true of you and I this morning? We have been given everything that we need for this life and the life to come because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Their giving was motivated by experiencing God's grace. This week I went to the story uh, in Luke chapter 18 of when Jesus met a little short guy named Zacchaeus. You remember that? Many of us grew up singing that song, right? Zacchaeus was a wee, come on, sing it with me. Wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He did what? He climbed up in the sycamore tree. Why? For the Lord he wanted to see. But as the Savior passed that day, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. For I'm going, you know how it goes? I'm going to your house today. I love the wee little man named Zacchaeus. I don't have time to really get into the story except to say that it's pretty obvious from Zacchaeus' life that his giving was motivated by experiencing the grace of Jesus. Look at verse 8 of Luke 18. If you have your Bible, flip real quick there. It says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of all my goods I give to the poor. Wow! Imagine that. Imagine if when we came to Jesus, we said, Half of what I give, I'm giving away right now. I don't know anybody that has that testimony. And then he said, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And by the way, that wasn't really, hey, and if I've done this, oh, he had done it. He was a wicked tax collector. He had done it. And he said, I'm not going to give it, just give it back to him. I'm going to do it fourfold. All of this happened because Zacchaeus, his life had been transformed. It had been changed because suddenly he found out that it wasn't about what he had done, that the grace of God, the sacrifice of God could cover that. And he could come into a relationship with creator God. One pastor commented, by grace, this little man became six foot six. I love that. That wee little man became six foot six tall because he experienced the grace of God and so his giving was motivated by experiencing God's grace. God can have our money and not have our hearts. But he can't have all of our hearts and not have our resources. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. 
There's no way to grow to spiritual maturity without committing your finances to the Lord. Did you hear that? Some of you that believe that that's not true. Let me say it again. There's no way for you to grow spiritually without committing your finances to the Lord. Some of us might want to take the time to wonder why it is that we are spiritually muted. Why for years and years and years we've not grown into maturity. Why we see people around us who seem to be more passionate about the things of God, more passionate about the gospel and the propagation of the gospel. Could I say to you this morning that it is quite possible that because you do not have your finances in order and they aren't fully devoted to the cause of the gospel and you don't have a proper relationship with those things that God has entrusted to you, that you are spiritually muted and your growth has been stunted. Because of it. Grace giving is motivated by experiencing God's grace. Number two, it's not motivated by circumstances. Chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians verse 2 says that they were in severe, a severe test of affliction. It isn't motivated by your circumstances. It'd be very easy for you right now to go, hey, here's my circumstances, and you know, we got we got a repair to make on the car, and so this, we, we just better put it over here and we better make sure it's safe. The Macedonians said. It's not determined by our circumstance. We know we're poor. We know we don't have anything, but somehow we're going to find something to give. It's done with joy, with enthusiasm. Out of their abundance of joy, verse 2 says. It's possible, by the way, to live generously without giving joyfully. <laughs> I know some people that I think are fairly generous, but they don't do it joyfully. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, if, if you're there, look at verse 7. It says that we're supposed to be cheerful givers. That word, by the way, that's translated cheerful, the Greek word, is the word that we get our English word, hilarious. We're supposed to be hilarious givers. We are to, to, to give with hilarity. It would be as if you're standing back there at those towers, and you come in and you get ready to put that check in, and you go, Hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo! you almost get giddy about it. And I know for some of you, you go, that's way out of my comfort zone. Like, I'm never going to do that. But that's, that's the inference of the text here, that they literally were just thrilled to give. They were cheerful givers. They got, they, got, they got giddy over it. Number four, they weren't hindered by their poverty. They were in extreme poverty, verse 2 says. Number five, they were always generous. Verse 2. By the way, generous is defined as showing a readiness to give more of something as money or time than is strictly necessary or expected. If we only give what is necessary or what is expected, we're not generous people. It's when we do something that is above and beyond, that's not strictly necessary or expected. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the story of a farmer. I love this. Let me read this to you. The farmer bounded joyfully into his kitchen one day, and confronting his wife with a great big grin on his face, he announced to her that their finest cow had just given birth to twins, one brown and one white. He said, I feel the impulse to dedicate one of these cows to the Lord. We'll bring them up together, and when they are at a marketable age, we'll sell them, and we'll keep the proceeds from one, and we'll give the proceeds from the other to the Lord. His wife went right to the issue, as wives are prone to do, and said, which is the Lord's cow? The white one or the brown one? He replied, well, there's no need to worry about that, dear, or to decide that now since we'll raise them together. Some months later, he entered the same kitchen a little more slowly, looking very sad. His wife asked why he was so sullen, to which he replied, I have bad news. 
The Lord's cow died. (laughs) Now, isn't it interesting, as I've thought about that little story that Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones shared, why is it always the Lord's cow that dies? Why, Why is it always the Lord's cow that dies unless we're absolutely clear about the true nature of our possessions? It will always be the Lord's cow that dies because there's always something more that we can spend our resources on. Is there not? You get a car and you think, well, I could get a nicer car. And you get a house and you think, well, I could get a nicer house. You go on a vacation and you say, I could go on a nicer vacation or I could go on more vacations. Either God owns our possessions and we serve him or they belong to us and we serve them. You can't have it both ways. These people were always generous. Number six, they gave in proportionate to their resources. Verse 3 says, they gave according to their means. It's really not about equal gifts. There are some people in this room this morning, and, and you may not believe this is true, but next week if, if they chose to and God prompts them in their heart, they could give hundreds of thousands of dollars. You might not be one of them. But there are some people here who God's entrusted resources like that. There are others God has not entrusted resources to us like that. We're not capable of giving. The idea is not equal gifts. It is equal sacrifice. Let me ask you this morning. If a a person makes $250,000 and they give 10% of that, how much would they give? $25,000, right? Not a trick question. Which would leave them with $225,000. I would guess there are many of us in this room right now who would say, I could live quite comfortably in Cary, North Carolina on $225,000, right? So we really sacrificed because we gave... 10% of a $250,000 salary. Let me further take you to the person who earns $35,000 a year. And were they to give 10% as well, that would be $3,500, which would mean they would be left to live on $31,500 and to take care of a family in Cary, North Carolina on a salary of $31,500. You have to be very creative. It's not about equal gifts. It is about equal sacrifice. Which leads me to point number seven, that these people gave sacrificially. They gave beyond their means. Here's the really cool thing for me at this point. As Diana and I have processed through this, we, some of you have heard me already tell the story. We went through the first step where, where we kind of, I got quicken out. I got a quicken file that's 20 years old. And I started looking at the quicken file and I went, da-da, we can do this. And it's generous. And had no peace whatsoever until we got to the point where we couldn't see how we could do that whole gift where God's going to have to show up. It's going to have to be one of those but God things in order to fulfill that commitment. And, and I have to sadly say and admit to you as your pastor that for really one of the first times in my life, I'm understanding what it means to give sacrificially because I don't understand where it's all coming from. And I think that's where God wants us to be. The Macedonians were certainly convinced of that because it said they gave beyond their means. James Montgomery Boyce said, from my own observation of the various patterns of Christian giving today, he said, I believe that one of the best things that could happen to many believers that, that, that would be for them is to be led to give it all away, all at one time, a substantial part of their savings. Why? Because there's something about giving away a sizable percentage of one's money that is spiritually invigorating. The Christian is thrown back on the Lord and learns that he is more able to care for the one who trusts him. I have seen this happen, he said, in many instances. I've never known a true Christian to be sorry for even the most sacrificial giving afterward. 
I'm praying that that will be true in my life and in your life as well during this process that we're in as a church family, that we will give to the point of sacrifice beyond our means. Number eight, it was also voluntary. Look at verse three. It says, they gave of their own accord. It's a theme that keeps coming back over and over again. There was no compulsion. You've all been in those church services, haven't you, where some pastor stood up in front and said, we're not going to be able to pay the staff this week. You people need to start giving. And you just kind of... He's beating on you and you're going, I am giving, you know? Why don't you at least beat the people up that aren't giving? And it's just about beating and it's about all of that. We determined early on, God, doesn't need, I, God does not need me to beat up on you to give money. And if you feel beat up on to give money, do not give it at Northwest. Give it to First Baptist Church over there. We don't want your money. I want you to give voluntarily, hilariously. That you just go, man, this is awesome to be part of this that's so much bigger than me for a cause that will last so much longer than my time here on this planet. These people gave voluntarily. Chapter 9, verse 7 says, as they had decided in their hearts, not reluctantly, because they realized God loves a hilarious, a cheerful giver. And then lastly, they gave out a privilege, not obligation. I hope none of you feel some of you have just shown up at Northwest in the last few months, and you have to have shown up just going, oh, man, wrong time. If we just could have waited just a few more months and gotten here, man, it would have been so much easier and so much better, and those pledge cards would have already all been out. And some of you are going, yeah, but we already came now. If we leave and then come back, you know, it's going to be, all right? These people said, man, it is a privilege. I've had people right here that are fairly new to this body that have said, we believe God put us here, right here at this moment for such a time as this. And I'm going, you're awesome. That's awesome. That is the spirit of God working through a heart. That is not giving under compulsion. They look at it as a privilege, not an obligation. These people literally were begging the apostle Paul to give. <laughs> I've never in 25 years had people going, you must give us an opportunity to give. Never. Never. That's what these people were doing. They were going, you got it. We want, where's the plates? I did have somebody ask that on a regular basis here at Northwest. Where's the plates? There are two towers in the back. See, we don't give under compulsion, right? You give as you feel God leading you to give. These people gave because they said it was a privilege. Come on, Paul, we want to give. Look what's been given to us. Look what we've experienced because of the grace of God. We want to give. Let me give you some practical suggestions, some do's and don'ts. Don't give to simply replace time or involvement. If you think that you can just give money and then skate in and skate out, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm grateful that you're giving money, but God wants all of us. And by the way, some of you go, well, hey, I serve. Good for you. Now give some money. Right? It's not an either or. We are to be stewards. We're to be stewards of our time, of our talents, and of our treasures. So many of us get into the idea that we think it's just about our treasure, uh, of this, of this uh, green currency stuff. It's not about that, just that. It is about our time and our talent as well. And certainly don't do it for public recognition. Somebody asked me not too long ago, you know, if somebody gave a lot of money, would we name a building after them? No. No, we won't. I'll tell you what, if you gave a million dollars, God's got a building named after you. God will take care of you. We don't give for public recognition. We don't give thinking we're going to attain grace. Don't give because somehow you think you'll gain God's favor. You won't. 
You've already got God's favor. God loves you more than he ever could love you right now. is isn't about how much money you give. What he entrusts with you, he expects you to be wise with, but don't give thinking that you're somehow going to attain grace. It's free. And, and then lastly, let me just encourage you to start now. Start right now. It's a natural tendency for us to wait and give until we think we can afford to give. That keeps many of us from ever giving. I know for me, you know, I can look at it and say, man, I got one kid in college and one right behind him, and, and this is just not a good time. Well, it's, have you found this to be true, most of you? There's never going to be a good time, right? That's why you just got to dive in, get wet. The water's warm. Enjoy it, right? You got to start right now. Do you realize that if you make $1,500 per year, you're richer than 75% of the world's six-plus billion people? you don't believe it, go to globalrichlist.com and it will tell you that. If you make more than $1,500, you are wealthier than 75% of the world's population. I had a man recently say this to me as I sat with him at dinner and I thought this was astounding. We hadn't seen each other in several weeks and we sat down at a restaurant and I thought we were just going to enjoy each other's company. We sat down right away and he said, "Um, I just want you to know that about a year ago we stopped giving. And I'm like, okay. Looking at him going, dude, if you hadn't told me, I would never know. <laughs> but thanks for the information. And he said this, and I asked him, could I share it with you without his name? And he said, yes. He said this, I wrote it down. I stopped giving so we could pay off some debt. He said, my wife and I, we look back over a year later, and we have more debt than we had before. Here's the truth. You can do more with what God entrusts to you when you faithfully give back to him a portion of what he's blessed you with than if you keep it all for yourself. I've been encouraged to hear stories about how people are processing through their involvement here in our campaign to build the first phase of our campus. One empty nester said this, and I loved this, we don't have a mortgage on our house, maybe we should just sell it and give half the money to the building program and then buy a home with the other half. I love that. One of our children just this week, he was asked the question at school, if you found a pot of gold, what would you buy? He quickly responded, an Xbox and a church building. In that order, I might add, I saw the little sheet of paper that he turned into his teacher. He said an Xbox, and then once I get the Xbox, I'll build a church building. But I got to have the Xbox first, right? That's awesome. Awesome. Just little kid. Love what's going on in our children's ministry, that our kids have bought into the idea about investing in something that's bigger than any one of them. And for a child to be able to write that down and say, yeah, I want an Xbox, but man, if I had a pot of gold, I'd build a church building. One of our high school guys said this, I wish I was Bill Gates. I'd just write a check for the whole amount. Since I'm not Bill Gates, I'm going to look at my work schedule and pick up another day and give that towards the building. I love that. Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, said this in 248 AD. Their possessions hold them in chains. Chains which shackle their courage and choke their faith and hamper their judgment and throttle their souls. They think of themselves as owners, whereas it is they, rather, who are owned. Enslaved as they are to their poverty, they are not the master of their money, but it's slaves. (laughs) Cyprian wrote that in 248 AD. I wonder what he would say about our American culture in 2014 AD. I close with this, G. Campbell Morgan said, you're to remember with the passion burning within you that you are not the child of today. You are not of the earth. 
You are more than dust. You are the child of tomorrow. You are of the eternities. You are of the offspring of deity. The measurement of your life cannot be circumscribed by the point where blue sky touches green earth. He goes on to say, all the fact of your life cannot be compassed in the one small sphere upon which you live. You belong to the infinite. If you make your fortune on the earth, poor, sorry, silly soul, you've made a fortune and stored it in a place where you cannot hold on to it. Then he closed those thoughts by saying this, make your fortune, but store it where it will greet you in the dawning of the new morning. I know for myself personally, because I am not naturally wired to be an incredibly generous person, that I want to learn what it means to live generously, to live a life with open hands, because I really believe that that is the evidence of an authentic growing relationship with Jesus. I wrote this down last night as the prayer of my heart. I want to share this with you as I close. Generosity says, I know who I am and who gave me what I have to manage. I also know that this world is not my home. When I leave, it all goes back in the box. Therefore, I enthusiastically choose to invest in things that count eternally. That's the prayer of my heart. And I pray that there'll be a number of you that will link arms with me, with one another, and say that too is the prayer of our heart. We want to be generous, generous people who live life with arms and hands wide open so that we might see the great and glorious gospel that we talked for months about in the book of Galatians invade not only our culture here locally in this community, but across the globe. I trust you'll partner with us for that cause. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for these Macedonians. Thanks for their great example. <laughs> Tumbling to see such poor people who are put up as the very example of generosity. God, you've been so, so good to so many of us. We've been given more than we could have ever thought or imagined even when we were children growing up for some of us who grew up in very poor homes. You've entrusted us, many of us, with great resources that we can squander on ourselves for these moments, for this vapor of a time that we spend here on this earth, or we can invest in things that ultimately count and matter for eternity. God, I pray that you'd count me with the group that says, I want to be about storing up for myself treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt, where thieves don't break through and steal. Because at the end of the day, God, help us to realize it all goes back in the box. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.